Uh, good morning. Welcome uh, to Crossview. Thanks for being in the room and thanks for those watching uh, online, particularly those at the Wood County Jail this morning. Glad that you're able to uh, take in this service with us. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Chris uh, and I'm one of the pastors here and grateful to be uh, sharing from God's Word this morning. Well, there's a popular uh, idea among some behavioral health experts uh, that says that at the core of who we are, uh, in our innermost being, we are basically good. And if we could just tap into that goodness somehow that's deep down inside of us, then our lives would turn around, right? And, and we'd feel better, and we'd be happier, and our kids would behave, and we wouldn't be unkind to each other, and on and on, right? Well, I don't know if you've ever interacted with people, kids or adults or even yourself, but if you have, right, it's not hard to see that that idea falls on its face almost immediately, right? Uh, toddlers, almost as quickly as they learn how to talk, learn how to say the word mine and are selfish without ever being taught how to do so. Uh, kids, without being taught, quickly learn how to push the buttons of their parents and of their siblings and they start fights like because they're bored and they want to have fun and they talk back and, and it's crazy, right? And teenagers uh, growing into their independence will lie and deceive and, and middle schools and high schools are places that will crush uh, the, the self-esteem of even the most thick-skinned individuals, right? It's, it's a tough place. Uh, then as adults, uh, people figure out how to kind of project an image and it's often for personal gain, but, but really we're just older kids and teenagers who are still struggling with those same issues, right? All that stuff uh, could be about me, by the way. A kid who was selfish and talked back and who started fights with my siblings for fun and who lied and deceived and who still deals with all kinds of inner and outer sin issues. And maybe you're similar. All right, to paraphrase Paul, uh, from the moment we come into the world, we keep on doing things that we do not want to do, right? And hopefully, we hate it. Right? I, we, don't, we don't want to use unkind words, but we do. I don't want to snap at people, but I do. I don't want to promote myself and be prideful, but I do it. I don't want to insert your thing of choice here, but I do. Well, what's up with that? Right? Why do I sin? And, and why is there this thing that's deep down inside of me that I just can't deal with, that just won't go away and that I have to fight against every single day. Well, that's what our text is going to deal with this morning. This idea uh, that there's an origin to our sinful ways, that, but that God in his grace has gifted us a solution. So would you open up with me uh, to the text that Sue just read for us in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. It's on page 914 uh, in the Worship Center Bible. Otherwise, if you brought your own and you don't know where it is, you open up you know, most of the way through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you hit Corinthians, you've gone too far. Um, if you have a phone with you, we have some notes available in the YouVersion app. Um, whatever translation you use in there, though, is just fine. Uh, so we'll be in Romans chapter 5, as I said. Um, as we dive in, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that we can find truth in it, that we can encounter you. Uh, that you teach us by it, that you equip us by it, that you encourage us and you challenge us, and that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Um, God, would you uh, help us to engage with you and your word more deeply this morning? Would you be here by your Spirit speaking through us? We thank you for the chance that we have to gather as believers in your name, and that you've promised to be among us when we do that. 
We ask that you would receive the songs that we sing as worship, as we've, in, as we've intended them uh, to be. Lord, we love you. Please be among us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we work through this morning and we kind of wrestle through this origin of our sin and the, and the gift uh, of a solution that God has granted to us, we're going to see three C's. We're going to see the culprit, the comparison, and finally, the commutation. So first up, we have the culprit in verses 12 to 14. Read these again with me. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. So sin entered the world, it says, and death through sin, and in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. We call this, uh, what Paul's talking about here, the doctrine of original sin. Maybe you've heard that before. That is what, it's what this is. It's the reality that each of us, whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, are born into sin because of Adam. So who was Adam, and what did he do that caused us to be born into sin? Maybe you're familiar, but if you're not, uh, here's a little refresher on Adam. To see Adam, we have to go all the way back to the very first chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Adam was the first man. He was created by God in the Garden of Eden, and he existed with God for some time uh, in the Garden just as a side note, uh, we, we may be uh, divided in this room on, uh, on, uh, on Adam and how he was made and, and the age of the earth, and maybe it's 6,000 years old, and maybe it's billions of years old, and maybe, maybe God created like it looks like he did in Genesis 1, or maybe God used uh, some sort of evolution, uh, like some would say. Um, and we can talk about that later. We can get coffee if you want to talk about that. But here's what's important. Here's what we have to agree on. Uh, all of us, whether, whether we think the earth is old or young, whether evolution happened or didn't, we all need to understand that it's critical that we believe in a literal historical Adam created by God as the first man. It's absolutely essential that we understand that Adam was historically the first man. Jesus references him. Uh, Paul references him here in other places. And he shows up in that genealogy in Luke that we like to skip over, right? But he shows up as, as Jesus' uh, first ancestor in the book of Luke. It's critical that our understanding of Adam is that he was a literal historical figure and the first human ever created by God. We cannot give that up. So, uh, Adam was in the Garden of Eden, and, and all the things were good, right? As he walked with God and talked with him, and God gave him his wife, Eve, and they named the animals, and everything was peachy, right? They could do just about anything they wanted. They got to enjoy God and his good creation and, and, and all that perfection, but there was just one boundary, right? You remember it? Uh, God said, don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, as you may know, Adam and Eve did not listen to that one rule, right? And the first sin was committed, and they're kicked out of Eden, and death enters the world, and on and on. Well, that's the beginning of the story of Adam, and the part of uh, Adam's life that Paul references in our text this morning. 
So if we go back to Romans, uh, it says here that sin entered the world through one man and that all have sinned. Well, that word sinned that shows up here um, in Greek is in the aorist tense, which basically means it's in the past tense. It's something that happened in the past, to which you'll say, duh, Chris, it, it shows up, it, it, it's past tense in English too, so why do we, well, it's important that we understand uh, that this is in the past tense, and it's important detail, because Paul is writing here that all people, that means all people past, present, and future, all people who have ever lived, who are currently alive like us, and who have yet to live, who will ever live, had death come to them, because all people have sinned in the past, in the person of Adam. So, so people who don't exist yet, but who will exist in the future, have already sinned in the person of Adam. Because Adam sinned, Paul says, you and I have sinned. Now, of course, we all sin presently as well, right? But it's important to note this distinction here, because Paul is saying that whether we actively sin or not, we are guilty of sin because our representative, Adam, sinned. Okay? It's, it's a little complicated, but hang with me here while we walk through this. How do we know? How do we know that, that all of humanity, including us and people who haven't yet existed, are guilty on account of Adam's sin? Well, verse 13 and 14 proves it. Because Paul tells us that sin was in the world before the law was given. So before God gave Moses and the Israelites those 613 do's and don'ts, sin was in the world, but sin was not charged to anyone's account. Where there were no laws, there could be no punishment, right? That makes sense. If, if there's a piece of property and no one says I can never go on it, no, I'm never forbidden from going on to it, I can't be charged with trespassing. Right? If, if it's not yet illegal to do something, then I can't be arrested for it. Right? The, the tongue-in-cheek way of saying this is it's, it's not a crime if it's the first time. Right? So Paul says people's accounts weren't charged with specific crimes before the law was given to Moses. They couldn't be charged and punished with breaking laws because those laws didn't exist. And yet, he says in verse 14, death reigned from Adam until Moses when the law was given, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command like Adam did. See what's going on? Adam, uh, death came to Adam because Adam broke a command. But everyone else who existed from the time of Adam until the time of Moses didn't have those laws, didn't have those commands to break, and so they couldn't have broken laws, right? So, so the argument goes, even though there was no law and therefore no sin being credited, yet death reigned, right? Physical death, sure, people died, but more importantly, spiritual death. So how can that be the case that all of those people experienced death even though they didn't break a law? Well, because Adam served as our federal head, as our representative, as the one who acted on our behalf. And when God told Adam, don't eat the fruit, Adam ate the fruit. He disobeyed the law. There was a law, Adam broke it, and Paul writes that sin entered the world through him, which progressed to death, entering through that sin, which progressed further to sin spreading to all people. You're probably thinking, that seems a little unfair, right? 
How can it be that death spread to me when I never got a chance to uphold the law? By the time I was born, sin was already pervasive, and I never got a fair shake at this thing, right? Maybe I would have done better. Maybe I would have listened to God's command. We have all kinds of problems with this kind of representation thing in American culture, don't we? In such an individualistic culture as ours, we want a shot at the title, right? We don't want someone else to do it for us. Because individual, not group success, right? Individual success, not group success, is the crowning achievement of Americans. Well, this is not the approach that Scripture takes. Instead, uh, in Scripture, and really around much of the world even today, a human solidarity approach is assumed, So the success or failure of one member can and often does mean the success or failure of a whole group of people. I think the closest thing we have to to this here um, is the legal system, right? Where a a legal representative will act on behalf of a person in court. and, And whether that lawyer succeeds or fails at their task will have dramatic implications in the life of the person they represent. In a similar way, We need to understand that Adam was a representative. He was a federal head for all of humanity. And again, we we cringe at this because the examples where we experience this, we typically enter into those relationships voluntarily, right? And in this case, we didn't get to. We just got stuck with Adam. If if we have a lawyer we don't like, right, we fire them and we hire someone that we want. Uh, If our union reps don't do what we want, then we vote in new reps, Right? If, if our elected officials at a local, state, or federal level enact policies that enough of us don't like, then when the system works correctly, we vote in new people who will do a better job at representing us. But here, we didn't get a choice. I'm going to tell you that that's actually a really good thing, and here's why. Because God chose Adam to be your representative. Over the last decade or so, and if you talk to senior saints, really over the last hundred years or whatever, uh, we've seen how poorly things go when we try to choose our own representatives. Very rarely in our own wisdom do we get it right in choosing people who we think will represent us really well. We almost never get it right, right? But, but God chose Adam, and God's pretty smart. So not only did God choose Adam, but he literally created him for the task. Right? Adam was created to be our representative, and he was designed to live in a world where sin did not exist. And, and as a human being, he acted exactly as any of us would have if we were in his situation. None of us can claim that we would have done a better job, largely because that claims that God made the wrong choice in Adam, and he should have chosen you or me instead. But God has infinite wisdom, He's infinitely wise, and and God did not make the wrong choice. So, here we are with Adam as our representative. And Adam, as our rep, sinned. And therefore, sin is imputed to us. It's credited to us. It's counted on my log and on yours. We're tempted to think that having Adam as our representative is really bad news and unfair. But let me tell you, it's far from bad news. It's actually great news that Adam is our representative. But we'll talk more about that a little later. So what's the culprit for the world being the way that it is? Well, original sin, right? Original sin, it's pervasive, and it corrupts everything that it touches. 
But the good news is, the story doesn't stop there. Romans doesn't stop there, right? We've established up to this point in the book already that there's a way to be saved from that sin by repenting and believing in Jesus. And Paul now moves on to the comparison of the sin of Adam and the gift of Christ in verses 15 to 17. Let's look at this comparison starting in verse 15. He writes this, he says, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? As the trespass caused death to many, Paul says, the gift overflowed to many. But the work of Adam and the work of Christ are not the same, not even close. First off, death came as a result of Adam's trespass, but justification and new life come as a gift from Jesus, right? Adam broke the law, and the result is death, right? Physical and spiritual to all of those that he represented. The the punishment fits the crime, right? Adam broke the law, and so he was punished for it. Well, Jesus, by the grace of God, gave a gift that will overflow to many. Death is deserved, but life is not. And yet, if we will come to God to receive the gift, the righteousness of Christ is granted to us. Second, the trespass brought condemnation, but the gift brought justification. As we stand before God, there are only two statuses available, right? We talked about this last week. We either stand condemned or we stand justified. That's it. There are no other options. If you've not repented of your sin and confessed Jesus as Lord and believed in him for salvation, you're standing condemned before God. That's the result of Adam's trespass. We're born with Adam's guilt, totally corrupted by sin. But... By the work of Jesus and the gift of God, we can be justified and forgiven and counted righteous. Third, the trespass brought death, but the gift brings life. Sin kills, right? We can, we can sugarcoat that all we want and, and call it whatever we want and doll it up and doctor it up and try to make, look, make sin look really pretty. But the reality is sin kills whatever it touches, right? It destroys your relationships. It'll destroy your personality. It'll take your joy. It'll separate you from God for all of eternity. Sin kills, but Jesus brings life, right? He'll grant you freedom and true joy, and he'll restore your relationships with people and with God. When you are in Christ, you have new life. You've been pulled up out of the grave and restored, and you now stand forever alive in Christ, Well, the fourth and final difference, and maybe the most important, is this. The power of sin pales in comparison to the power of Christ. Verse 15 says, Many died by the trespass. How much more did God's grace and the gift overflow to the many? 
Verse 17, if by the trespass death reigned through one man, how much more will those who receive God's gift reign in life through Jesus? The work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the Spirit in our lives totally overwhelms the work and effect of sin. Death and sin no longer have a grip on you when you come to Jesus. What he's done infinitely outweighs the consequences of sin. Have you ever considered that? That what Jesus has done so far outweighs the consequences of sin? I think we, we often get stuck in this reality of our sinfulness, and we kind of hang out there. Right? We identify with Adam, and, and we know ourselves, and we know that we're broken on the inside, and we feel like we need repairs, or we think, I'm just beyond repair. But the thing is, when we come to Jesus, and we're filled with the Spirit, we have more power in us than we can begin to fathom. When temptation creeps in, we're not alone, right? When our kids misbehave and, and we go into their room to have a follow-up conversation and we feel that urge to blow up, well, the Spirit is available to us. Jesus is in the room with us, willing and able to help. When someone offends us, right, or, or maligns our name somehow, and we feel like we need to vindicate ourselves and tell them off, well, Jesus is with us and he wants to help when our ugly pride rears its head, right, and we need to make sure that everyone knows how great we are and we have to toot our own horn and on and on, Je Jesus is there. And he's not there in these situations to judge you and condemn you or try to make you feel bad. He's there to walk with you through that difficulty. Uh, Paul David Tripp, who's a pastor many of you are familiar with, uh, writes about this idea in his book called Parenting. And, and while this is a book uh, addressed to parents, Listen to this excerpt, and um, you'll see it, it's not just for parents. Uh, he writes about this idea of um, Jesus being with us in our difficult situations. So hear this. He says, If you are God's child, it is impossible for you to be left to your own limited package of resources. It's impossible for you to be relegated to whatever is the size of your strength and wisdom. And here's what you need to remind yourself of every day. God's greatest and most wonderful gift to you as a parent is himself. He knows how hard your task is. He knows that it drives you beyond the borders of your patience and wisdom. He knows that there are times when you feel you have no clue of what you're doing. He knows there are moments when you wish you could quit and walk away. He knows there are moments when anger grips you. He knows that your children can get under your skin. He knew what every piece of your struggle would be as a parent or as a spouse or a boss, or a friend, or an employee. So he knew that the only thing that would help you would be himself. Then he says, hear these words from Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Jesus Christ through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Wherever you go and whatever you do, when you encounter sin, the Spirit of God is within you. And the power of God so far outweighs the power of sin in the Christian that it is beyond description. As Ephesians 3 says, he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. The power of Christ is in you and at work within you, transforming you. Rest in that power. Adam brought about sin, right? But as you can see from that list, the, the trespass is not like the gift. 
Jesus' gift is so much greater. So there's an origin to our sin, right? And Jesus' work differs from Adam's in some key ways, but there's something even better that happens when we turn in faith to Jesus, and it's found here uh, in verses 18 to 21. Would you look back there with me? Paul writes, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In these verses, we read what I think is best described as the commutation. Well, what does it mean? What is commutation? Well, Merriam-Webster defines commutation like this. It's to exchange or trade or a replacement, specifically a substitution of one form of payment or change for another, or a change of a legal penalty or punishment to a lesser one. Our sentence has been commuted, it's been exchanged or traded or replaced by the work of Jesus. Our death sentence has been commuted by Jesus' work. Adam's sin led to our guilt, right? And we stood condemned. Well, Jesus' obedience leads to our righteousness and our justification. I said earlier that it was really good news, even though it didn't look like it, uh, that Adam is our representative. Well, here's why. It's good news that Adam can represent us because that means that God will recognize a representative for us. We don't have to represent ourselves. Adam failed at his task. He failed. He sinned. He disobeyed God. But God provided a new representative in Jesus Christ, and Jesus did not fail. Jesus did not fail at his task of obedience to God. And so when you come to faith in Jesus, the disobedience of Adam is gone, and the obedience of Jesus replaces it. And so when you, Christian, disobey, God does not look at your disobedience and withdraw from you or or push you away. He instead has credited the obedience of Christ to you and says, nailed it. You nailed it. This is mind-blowing stuff, honestly, because... Because seriously, think about this. You are sinful by nature and by choice, right? We can't really argue with that. We, we know it. We all know that in spite of whatever some psychologists say, we're not really good on the inside in general, right? We disobey and we defy and on and on and on, right? We get it. But if we have repented and believed, when we disobey, God credits Christ's obedience to our record, not our own disobedience. It's crazy, right? When I disobey, Christ's obedience is granted to me. There's a temptation uh, that comes along with this to think that then if whatever I do, if I disobey Jesus' righteousness and his obedience is going to be credited to me anyway, then what does it matter if I, if I obey? Why, why should I care how I live? Well, if that's creeping in, if that idea popped in your head, come, come back the next couple of weeks because Romans chapter 6 addresses that in a couple of different ways. It talks about this idea of how we live in light of the grace and the obedience that's credited 
to us. But for now, know that you, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, have been credited with the obedience of Christ. You don't do anything to deserve that, and you can't earn it, right? It's purely a gift from God to be received in faith. And it's a wild gift, right? It, it's wild because you lie, and Jesus told the truth, and on your record goes truth teller. You steal, and Jesus is generous, and, and it's credit to you generosity. Right? You cheat, and Jesus is honest, and you get honesty. The obedience of Christ is credited to you. His obedience is given to you, and on that basis alone, you are made righteous. Jesus' obedience is given to you, and when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' obedience, and he says, you are righteous. Though the sin of Adam caused condemnation for all people, right, there's now a way to counteract and commute that sentence, and all you have to do is repent and believe, and every perfect and obedience and righteous thing that Christ ever did is written down in your permanent record. Everything that Jesus did as he obeyed the Father in his life is written down on your record. Think about that. We think about this happening other places to understand the insanity of it, right? Just, just think about these scenarios with me. You didn't study for a test at school. In fact, you forgot there was a test, and you showed up, and, and you got 0% because you hadn't been paying attention in class, and you had no idea what's going on. You should, 0%, right? Total F. But the valedictorian shows up for class, and they've studied for weeks, right? They're a good student. They, they took this thing really seriously, and, and they got 100%. They got the A. And simply because they're good and they love you, they took the F while you got the A. Or you show up for work and, and you're expected to make a presentation today to the board of directors. It's a, it's a big deal. They asked you months ago to come up with an idea uh, and to make a presentation to, to help the company improve. And you stand up there, and it's casual Friday, and you forgot about this thing, so you're totally dressed down before the board of directors, and, and you have nothing. And you're sweating, and your face is all red because you know you've really blown it. You're humiliated, and you're embarrassed. Right? But the star employee, she steps up, and she's prepared, and so she crushes it, right? And she presents an idea and has this amazing thing, and it's going to make the company billions of dollars. But... Because she loves you and is so full of grace, you get all the credit. You get the promotion. You get the raise. Stuff like that doesn't really happen in real life, right? That's not going to happen. But in Christ, it did and more. In the face of Adam's disobedience and my rebellion and your defiance, the obedience of Christ is given to you and to me. He took the test and he aced it. And we got the credit. He gave the presentation and he crushed it. And we get all of the benefit of his hard work. Right? We deserve the cross, but he hung there instead. We deserve death, but instead he gave us his obedience and life. If we are in Christ instead of in Adam, that is, if we've placed our trust in Jesus for salvation, then the obedience of Jesus is our obedience. The obedience of Jesus is our obedience. Your sentence 
if you are in Christ, has been commuted. It's been commuted. Praise God. Romans has shown us uh, the origin of our sin problem, right? And the solution that God has granted. And, and now maybe you're here feeling like you've blown the test. You failed it miserably. Or you messed up the presentation and you're standing there humiliated and embarrassed. You've begun to believe that lie that circulates that tells us that we're good at the core of our beings. And that lie sucks us in, right? It offers us cheap comfort and tells us, well, if I could, if I could just make myself a little better, if I could unlock myself somehow, then I'll be good enough. Well, Romans says that that's just not true. We all need the grace of Jesus, who is the better and perfect Adam to act on our behalf. And the good news is he does it. He acts on our behalf if we just turn to him. If you're feeling the weight of your sin this morning, turn to Jesus. Turn to him. Repent and believe and reap the benefits of Christ's obedience as you follow him with your life. You might feel like you don't deserve it, uh, and that's true, right? You don't deserve it, and neither do I. But God is a great and good God, and Christ is a kind and loving Savior. You might feel like you don't deserve it, but don't stop there. Don't say, oh, I don't deserve it, so I can never go to Jesus. He could never forgive me. No, the last two verses of chapter 5 talk about this idea. How the law came, and it exposed all the sin, and it shows us how dirty and broken we are. But grace increased all the more. Grace increases and increases and increases so that you can be washed by the blood of Jesus and made whole again. You are not too broken. You are not too far gone. You are not too sinful for Jesus to love you and for his obedience to be credited to you. John Newton, uh, the author of that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, that we just sang on his deathbed famously said these words. He said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Christ is a great Savior, isn't he? Far better than we deserve. So Christian and non-Christian alike, run to him. Run to him. Enjoy the riches of his grace and rest in the obedience of Christ. And let the reality that, that his work accomplished so much cause your love for God to deepen and deepen. Let's pray.